0: we're going to finish the series called Fusion. This is the 10th and final message on um, this topic of unity. And um, I've enjoyed it. I, when we were in the prayer room before service, we meet and we pray for an hour before service in a room right on the other side of this wall. And um, our focus, it's supposed to be, sometimes we go this way or that way, but our focus is really supposed to be on what is God doing in this moment? What's he doing? What's he saying? We don't get caught up on our personal prayer lives or, or, you know, preach to each other. It's all about intercession for this service. And so you've been prayed over, maybe not by name, but when you walked in the building, you came into an atmosphere that has been bathed in prayer. And I I told the, the team this morning, Uh, The group that gathered, I said, this series on unity is going to be more important in six months than it is right now, because of what the Father is doing. And he's doing it in our region, he's doing it in our city, and even more localized, he's he's doing it in particular right here in Lawrenceville. And I don't have the ability to highlight why I could say such a thing, but if you will, just take my word for it and keep your eyes open and you'll see it. I believe incredible things are coming in the next six months to this church, but they will only come and manifest to the degree that we are going to practice what I've preached in this series on unity. And so today, I would love to end the series with a sweet little sermonette that would give you goosebumps and make you feel patted on the head, and but that's not my style, so I can't do that. <laughs> But it doesn't mean you can't be helped. And so let me read from Luke chapter 9. I'm going to begin in uh, verse 49. I, mean, I brought some glasses up here. Luke 9, 49. John answered Jesus and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Come on, Luke. Did you hear that? It's not Luke today. We got a different baby giving the shouts. We're going to get real about our attitudes today. That's the name of the message. You may not fit this bill today, but I will give you a little prophetic nugget that won't cost you anything. If you don't need this today, you will sooner or later. This is a message about our attitudes towards others That are very different than us. And we're gonna go to the extremes with this because that's what the passage indicates. Let me contextualize the verses we just read. Jesus is heading towards the cross to give his life for sinners. Jesus is in the last leg of his journey on planet Earth at his first coming. And so as he is approaching the cross, just shortly before these verses, his wonderful disciples that he spent over three years with, as Jesus is heading to the cross, what do the disciples do? They start bickering with each other. What are they bickering about? Who's going to be the man in the kingdom? Now they know Jesus is going to be the king, but they're wondering who's going to be the greatest one besides him. And they're each jockeying for position. They're jostling because each of them thinks that he's going to be the man. And so Jesus humbles them. And yet we still find at the back end of this, as they're getting humbled, as they're getting corrected about their egos, as they're getting corrected about their arrogance, as they're getting corrected by the Son of God about their presumption that any of them would necessarily be entitled to being at Jesus's right hand in the kingdom, then John, the sensitive one of the disciples, he seems to be more sensitive than the other 11, John seemingly gets convicted about something that had happened earlier. And so he asks Jesus this question that opens up the rest of this message. So let's look at this together this morning, and let's see how Jesus is working in their lives. And guys, let's have enough faith to say he's probably working in our lives like this right now. First of all, Jesus corrects our natural tribalism. Now, it may not be a word that you're familiar with, tribalism. I actually really like that word. Tribalism is simply our our innate tendency, our, our natural inclination to separate and divide. We do this all the time. If you don't think so, then you're probably not a college football fan because some of you belong to the Georgia Bulldog tribe. Some of you belong to the Georgia Tech tribe. Some of you are Clemson tribe members. Some of you are FSU. Some of you might be out there in the Pac-10 or whatever. That's, those tribes don't really count, but it, you know. <laughs> Ohio State, anything, Michigan. Come on, somebody. Do we have any football fans here? LSU, LSU, okay. Brother, come and get saved at the invitation right after, and we'll be all right. The point being is we put on our colors. We put our flags. I go riding through my neighborhood, and there's flags on everybody's outside their porch and everything. I was like, okay, we're, we're tribal when it comes to our sports teams. Uh, we're, we're tribal when it comes to what school we went to. We're tribal when it, when it comes to uh, our, oh yeah, you don't think you're tribal? Uh, how about every four years in November, you find out how tribal you are. We've never seen our nation more tribal than it was back last year and really currently what's going on now. So we all have a natural, that's the key word, not spiritual, natural inclination towards tribalism. So what does it look like in these verses where Jesus deals with it? Well, here's the thing, this is where it begins. It begins with us needing something. We need to retain the big picture. And I see that addressed or illustrated at the beginning of verse 49. Watch this. John is convicted about what Jesus just said about being, need to be the least in the kingdom if you ever want to be the greatest. And so John asks this question. He says, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. Now just stop right there. Because all of a sudden, the the big picture should expand in your mind right now. Why? Because John just introduced a reality of a war going on. A war that exists between darkness and light. A war that exists between heaven and hell. A war that exists between the church and the world and the flesh and the devil. There is a war that is going on and the war is represented on the darkness side from this issue of demonization. The reality in Jesus' day In Luke's day, as he is writing this, is that there were active demons moving about the world, working the work of their leader, Satan, who is a killer. He is one who seeks to steal and kill and annihilate. And that demon had possessed a man, and John is alluding to the fact, not alluding, he's addressing the reality that as they were going back about their day-to-day business, there they saw yet another demon-possessed person. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you recognize that there was increased demonic activity during the life of Jesus. It seems like that when God started moving and manifesting himself through his son on earth, that demonic activity began to really surge and much of Jesus' ministry was centered on casting out the evil one. Remember this, Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. And so part of the mission of Jesus and part of the mission of the, the current church is to destroy the works of the devil. And part of that mission, part of that works of the devil are carried out by demonic influence. And so, all of a sudden, John introduces this reality that there, there, there's a war going on. You've got two kingdoms, Jesus's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. You don't like that. We, so Satan has no authority. Listen, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Satan has allowed permitted authority. He, he, he can't do anything out from under God's authority, but he does have power. He does have authority, and he never takes a day off. And so if we can bring that big picture a little bit down to home, I want you to know something. Satan has a strategy for you, for your spouse, for your children, for your grandchildren, for your city, for the school that you might go to, for the ministry that you might have been entrusted with. Satan has a strategy against your body, against your mind, against your emotions. He's got a a strategy against your genealogy. If he's had a a historic generational binding in your family, he doesn't want you to break it. So he's coming after you too. So it'll pass from you into your kids and your grandkids. So this war is going on. And I know it's not a pleasant thought, but the, the reality is, is if we don't think about it, we will have a hard time winning this war. Nobody can win a war that they're not convinced exists. And so, as this is going on, we see this need for you and me. Say, Jeff, what does this have to do with anything? It's actually the essence of what I'm saying. Because, listen, it is not Satan against the Baptists, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Pentecostals, the Catholic, the Episcopalians, and the Lutherans. No, it is Satan against God's children. And so, listen... He just wages all-out war, and the reality is, if we're just clinging to our tribe and fighting other tribes, we're actually, we're actually cooperating with his plan to weaken the body of Christ. So let's go a little further with it, because we're still in the first half of the first verse, and I already know what time it is. So we've got a need to retain the big picture. I just want to tell you this. This is a great day. I'm, I'm, I'm about to move on, but it'll be a great day in your life. Will you make, if necessary, a solemn vow? Be careful if you do that. But you might want to make a vow, and if not a vow, a deep commitment. Father, I will never use my mouth and my tongue from this day forward to tear down any other tribe of your children, because the tribes are imaginary. Lord, we created them, but Lord, you see us as your children. And when you start making commitments like that, listen, there is one well-known preacher in the kingdom of God that I have wrestled with in my flesh for a very long time. Um, I used to speak about him by name and frequently. I disagree with him on just about every single thing I've ever heard him say. And God wore me out about it. It took about six months to nine months to wean me from never mentioning that man's name again unless I was praying for him. And it is such a difficult thing when you've trained yourself in a tribalism to say, I'm right, he's wrong. And yet that can be spread out. And so in order for us to win this war and embrace the big picture, we've got to realize that when the enemy is coming against us, the tribes don't matter. They're imaginary. God didn't create them. We did. And it'll be a beautiful day. When those tribes slash denominations slash sectarian ways, when they're absolutely abolished. Does that sound a little bit too Pollyanna for you? Well, I'm just going to tell you, at the end of the age, there are no denominations and there are no tribes. There's in the sense of separation. And so there is only that oneness. Now look at the end of verse 49. So, there's this need to retain the big picture, but there's also a need to refrain from our impulse. Look at what John said. He said, Master, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. There it is. Now, let's just do a quick test. Good or bad casting out demons? Good. Good. That's a good thing, right? Right? That's a good thing better than introducing demons it's it's good to cast them out john said we saw this guy doing it and by the way he was doing it in the name of jesus and it didn't say that he was attempting to do it and failing by the way they had just attempted to cast the demon out jesus's own 12 had just attempted to cast the demon out and had miserably failed and then this they see this other guy who doesn't travel with their tribe and he's doing it and he's succeeding and what is their response hey you can't do that stop doing that and and here's why and they felt very noble in doing it they said because he doesn't follow with us he's not part of our little tribe he hasn't had the training we've had he, he hasn't been in the inner circle like Peter James and John had he, he hasn't he didn't pass out any of the loaves and the fishes on the hilltop we did that he, he, he didn't he didn't lay hands on the sick and heal them we did that and I, we don't even know this guy's name but we saw what he was doing lord and we told him not to do that anymore now i think at this time and i'm going to give john the benefit of the doubt i actually think he's getting convicted about it there is no other reason for him to bring this up right now other than to say oh well jesus told us he just corrected us about our need for humility and maybe john's realizing hey Maybe we were operating in arrogance when we told that guy who was whipping up on the enemy not to do it because he didn't have the same business card that we had. Come on, All right. Now, friends, this seems so extreme that it can be real easy for you to detach and you're already at lunch in your mind, you know, going over the menu. I want you to listen, though. There's a lot of churches in our area. And the reality is there are a lot of denominations, and the reality about the different denominations is we don't all see eye to eye on the same things. But I wonder if we can humble ourselves a moment and say, if they are sincerely doing what they're doing for the glory of Jesus, and they get the core essence of the gospel right, is it a wise and proper use of my time and my resources and my words to resist these people Or should I just stay away? Now, John is simply saying to Jesus that, Lord, I need to confess something. This is what we did. You see, tribalism occurs when we differ with other Christians. Our ways are different. Our words that we use are different. Our worship is different. Our church is different. Our denomination is different. Our our preferences are different. All of that stuff can be different. But does that mean because they differ with us, they are automatically wrong and we're right? And yet, how difficult it is to take that easily verbalized answer of no and flesh it out in love. Not only to not stop them, but to actually pray for God to bless them. For God to bless a church that feels differently about you fill in the blank. Some of us were trained in our fundamental ways that if they differ at all, they're probably worthy of walking away from. Well, I guess it really doesn't matter what my opinion is. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus tells them about a need to remain committed to humility. Jesus said to John, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. So Jesus' answer involved two things. First, a prohibition. John said, there was a guy, he's not in our crew. He was casting out demons, but Lord, we told him not to. And Jesus said, don't do that. Do not do that. It reminds me, this is the first time this happens in the Bible, though, by the way. If you go back to the book of Numbers, chapter number 11, Moses is the man. Moses is the man, and he's got an understudy named Joshua. And Joshua comes flying into Moses' presence one day. He says, Moses, there's two guys back at the camp. Great names, Eldad and Me Dad. Amen, amen, and amen. <laughs> Eldad and Me Dad are back in the camp, and they're prophesying, you want me to take care of business? And listen to what Moses said in his day. Moses said, no, 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 no. He said, I wish everybody was prophesying and I wish God would pour out his spirit on everybody you see Joshua was jealous jealous for the glory of Moses but Moses wasn't jealous for his own glory Moses was jealous for the glory of God and therefore was able to say don't stop them from prophesying I pray that more will prophesy what about John the Baptist John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's the man I mean, crowds are coming, there hadn't been anybody speaking openly for Yahweh in four centuries before John the Baptist comes on the scene. And John the Baptist comes out there and he's not really doing miracles or any of the signs and wonders, he's just doing proclamation and people are repenting and people are getting saved and he's calling down the religious yo-yos and, and, and just calling them snakes and all this and man, I mean, there's a big movement and so everybody's following John until that fateful day where John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and he baptizes. Is Jesus and then the crowds start going after Jesus. And in a very infrequently preached passage of scripture, there's an occasion where John's disciples, John the Baptist disciples, come to him and say, Hey, everybody that was following you is now following Jesus. And they were disturbed. Why? They were jealous for the glory of their tribe. The JTB tribe, the John the Baptist tribe. And they and John the Baptist said, John the Baptist says, Yeah, what y'all don't understand is that my whole ministry was about stepping back into the shadows and letting him take the light. I've got to decrease so that he increases. Again, not, not giving into tribalism, but 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 stepping forward and saying, I want to discern what the Father is doing, and whatever the Father is doing, I want to throw fire on that. I want to throw fuel on that fire. So you got. The Apostle Paul in that same, that same vein in Philippians chapter number one, Paul's writing from jail and he's writing the church at Philippi. And he's saying, hey, you know what's going on out there? The gospel's being preached everywhere. And some people are preaching it sincerely. And everybody reading the letter says, yeah. And then he goes, but some, they're actually preaching it motivated by envy and strife because they want to make my imprisonment more hard than it is. There were actually preach people preaching the gospel and they were doing it in a way to take advantage of Paul in some fashion while Paul was imprisoned and couldn't do any ministry. And so they're probably bad-mouthing Paul. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 1. He says, it doesn't matter to me whether in pretense or in truth as long as Christ is preached. Now, let me tell you what I've learned from that. That if a person is preaching the gospel... And a person is magnifying Jesus, and God is sovereignly seeing fit to bless that person's ministry, no matter how suspicious I am of their motives, no matter how much I may disagree with other peripheral stuff that goes on in their lives or ministry, my call is just to say, well, I'll let the Lord sort out the motivation. He's the only one that's qualified to see a motivation in somebody's heart. So I'll be quiet, and as long as Jesus is preached, I'm going to be like Paul, so be it. It's a good thing. Now, friends, let me tell you something. What you're feeling right now is God tugging on your right to denounce. And he's pulling out of you your tendency to criticize, to gossip, to slander, to murmur, to throw uh, accusation out there. And listen, I'm I'm just going to tell you, we're naturally inclined to do that, but that's the operative word. We're trying to put down that first nature and raise up the second nature, the nature of God that lives within you, so we're free to bless what God blesses. So, let's go down into verses 51 through 52. Beyond Jesus correcting our natural tribalism, we also see Jesus exemplifying our need to take risks. This moves us into the second portion of this uh, passage of scripture. Jesus is now heading up to Jerusalem to die. Look at verse 51. We see him intentionally stepping into sacrifice. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is 33 years old, he lived 30 years on earth. And really functional anonymity. Nobody really knew who he was. Isaiah prophesied and said, there was nothing that when you look at him would be comely or beautiful. He he was an average looking man. There's no indication in scripture that prior to his baptism and embarking in ministry that he ever did anything supernatural. There's nothing in the Bible recorded in that except that he grew in wisdom and favor with God and man. And he grew in knowledge. At 12 years old, that's the only blip of the radar we see, that he was able to to hold spellbound the doctors of of the law of Moses in the temple, so he could hold court. He, was, he had wisdom that was extraordinary, obviously, as the Son of God. But he was living as a woodworker. He was living as the son of Joseph and Mary. He was the big brother in the house. There was all sorts of um, kind of slander on him because people knew about the weird situation with his birth. How did his mother get pregnant before that she was married? And all this talk about the angels. And there was a common kind of uh, line of slander that said Mary got pregnant by a Roman soldier and Joseph was a chump for sticking with her. That was kind of the the, um, scandal that was on that family. So at 30 years old, Jesus moves into public ministry. And that ministry involved so much. That ministry involved him speaking words that the world had never heard, wisdom that the world had never heard. He brought to life Old Old Testament passages of Scripture that had been unenlightened upon in the hearts of so many. And when Jesus touched them, understanding came alive. He spoke so that the common man could understand the common woman could understand that he welcomed children to come and take part in whatever he was doing he, he showed mercy and kindness and compassion and judaism in that day wasn't known for that judaism in the time of jesus pharisaical judaism was known for a lot of law keeping and a lot of heavy, heavy burdens and so jesus even went after that on behalf of the people he said to the pharisees the leaders he said you lay burdens upon the people that you yourself can't even carry And he didn't play their game. And so the common people loved him to a certain extent. The the people in power were very skeptical, very paranoid, and very afraid of him. And so as that was going on, that was was his words. But then he 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 would lay his hands on the sick and they'd be healed. He would raise the dead. Three different occasions where he seemed to raise the dead. There was a little girl who had just died and he raised her there was a man who had been dead just a little bit over a day and he raised him and then there was Lazarus who had been in the tomb for a long time so that his body was already decomposing and Jesus raised him and in that picture of those three resurrections you can see that the Lord will raise one who's just just recently become aware of their sinfulness and has just recently come into that awareness of spiritual death. And then he can raise that middle one like he did that one in in the book of Luke that widow of Nain's son who who was dead but not really decomposing. That stands as a picture of those that maybe have gone a little longer in their sin but their lives aren't wrecked yet and Jesus can raise that one up and save them and then you've got Lazarus and he stands for guys like me guys whose life was rotten guys whose life was corrosive guys whose life was worthy to be kept and sealed in a tomb and yet Jesus calls him out and so he's raising the dead he's healing the sick he's opening blind eyes he's causing the deaf to hear he's doing all these miracles but all of that was simply the paving stones to do what he really came to do. And that's what's referenced right here. What is it? He set his face to go to Jerusalem in those days where he would be taken up. See, Jesus was always about the cross. Because, friends, everything else he did, apart from his saving, sacrificial work on the cross for sinners... All of those other works would have been good, but they would have been temporary because those sick people eventually died. Those people that were demon-possessed eventually died. Jesus came to offer hope beyond the grave, and that necessitated the cross. Somebody had to purge sin, and no sinner could do it. So it required one who was sinless, and Jesus did those things that always pleased God. The Father. And so when he laid himself out willingly on the cross, that was the plan the whole time. He had asked the Father, If there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And the Father's answer was, This is the way. And he drank the cup of God's wrath. He drank my punishment in his body. He drank my condemnation in his body. And when he took all of the sin of all of those who would believe, and he took it to the fullest and took it into death and took it into the tomb. And three days later, the father said, come forth, son. And Jesus triumphed over death. And in doing that, he showed that he had rendered sin as not the greatest and final authority. He showed that he has authority over death, hell, sin, and the grave. Now, friend, I will tell you this because I couldn't know where any of you are. I want to tell you in love that Jesus is your only hope. And he is the greatest hope. And he is the hope that comes to you with his message of mercy and grace and forgiveness and freedom. And if you will but trust him in this hour, I will tell you, no matter whether you're like the little girl who had just died or the man who had been in the coffin for a day or in the tomb like Lazarus, whatever the spectrum of your moral decay, I'm just telling you, he'll meet you right there because he's never met a sinner that he said, I can't do anything with her so he'll meet you today so when those days drew near back to Luke 9 when the days drew near for him to be taken up he set his face the Greek indicates that he got intense about going up to Jerusalem You, you know what it's like where you got commotion going on around you people talking and you're locked into something wives you know your husband does this right I mean he you he is locked into something and, and you're talking and talking, and he's in the room with you, and he can hear the sounds, but he is, he is focused on something else. Probably wasn't the best illustration, but. <laughs> the point being, Jesus is thinking about one thing. I've got to get to Jerusalem. I've got to embrace my cross. And so that was what was going on in that moment. He said, Jeff, why is that important? Well, it, it leads to this dilemma. Because he is now moving forward, and he's got a large crowd with him. I mean, no doubt he's got the 12 disciples, but there's also a lot of other people. And so they're walking. Remember, there's there's no Uber. I mean, he's going to walk this out. And so they're walking, and they're in Galilee, and they're moving south. And they want to get to Jerusalem, but in between Galilee and Jerusalem is this area called Samaria. And this was a no-go zone. This was not a place where Orthodox Hebrews typically walked through. But Jesus even until his dying days, was always taking risks, as far as the human eye could see. Jesus was about to destroy again this notion of tribalism because he's going to really stretch the disciples and his followers because he is going to offer himself yet again to the Samaritans. Now, I'll tell you who the Samaritans are in just a moment, but look in verse number 42, and we'll describe it this way. Jesus was purposefully pushing cultural boundaries. So he sent messengers ahead of him. And those messengers went, and they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So who are the Samaritans? Very quick history lesson. They have been, at that point, for centuries, um, a group of people who came about into existence Through a mixed set of breeding, if we can say it that way, enforced marriages and breeding. Centuries before, during the captivity, when the tribes of Israel were, our northern tribe was taken into captivity, that wicked king sent down Gentiles and pagans down there into the area, now called Samaria. And his purpose was for his people to intermarry and to interbreed and to destroy the uniqueness of the Hebrews. And so, as they did that, they developed their own worship system over time. They discarded the books of poetry in the Bible. They discarded the books of wisdom. They discarded the historical books. And they had their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And they said, the Pentateuch, our version of it is God's word, nothing else. And so, they developed a religious system that was different than the Hebrews. And they also decided, we're not going to worship at Jerusalem. We're going to worship on Mount Gerizim. And so they had a different style of worship, a different place of worship. Now, when the Hebrews come back down to the land and now for centuries have lived there in close proximity to the Samaritans, what you've got is a massive amount of tension. You've got racial tension because the Jews didn't like the fact that the Samaritans were partially Jewish, partially Gentile. So you had racial hostility. Then you had cultural hostility. And add on top of that, the different ideas about worship, and you had this religious hostility. So in other words, they didn't go fishing together they didn't like each other. And Orthodox Hebrews at that time would do anything to go out of their way than have to pass through Samaria. And so as Jesus and his entourage are moving south, I'll do it the way out. Let me reverse it so it makes sense for you guys that are watching. So they're moving south, and here's where they need to get to, but here's Samaria. And so typically Hebrews would come all the way over here, crossing the Jordan, once up here, going all the way down past Samaria's southern part, and then they were traveling eastward, and then they would come, and boom, they would cross the Jordan again, and they would there be in the area of Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't going to do it. Jesus just says, hey, I'm going to the cross, there's people in Samaria. This is going to be their last chance. I'm going to go right through Samaria. And so he says to some of his followers, we've got a large group go on ahead of us, find some people that will show us hospitality. We need a place to stay or places to stay, and we're going to need some food. Now, he wasn't being presumptuous. That's what people did in that day. It was part of the culture to take care of the stranger that was moving through your territory. And so that's exactly what they did. And so all I'm going to say about this, and then we're going to wrap up. All I'm going to say is this even until the very end, Jesus was challenging his followers don't buy into the things that divide us. Don't buy into the, the walls that man has erected to separate himself from other of, of, of people that God loves and wants to redeem. So how do we apply that today? Well, listen, chances are you spend most of your time with people that look like you, think like you, dress like you, sing like you, worship like you, walk like you, work like you. Matter of fact, most of us are tribal. Most of us are. Now, you may not want to confess that, but I just confessed it for you. Very few people are intentionally tribal. Pressing boundaries are intentionally going to people groups that are different, different races, different parts of the culture, different parts of the world for that matter. And we typically, if we're not pressing into it, we're going to think just like people like us, and we continue to hang out with people just like us. So that reinforcement comes that we're right, we think right, we do right, because we're never challenged to think differently. And so we 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 get all of our information about the other people from media sources, that are led by people that think just like us. <laughs> y'all, y'all look very uncomfortable. Good. I know I'm preaching good. I know. <laughs> so Jesus says to all of his Jewish followers, "Hey, we're going to cut through Samaria," and they're like, <laughs> "Amen." <laughs> you know, okay. But watch what happens because it's not one-sided. So go down into verses 53 through 56, my last point. Jesus challenges our judgmental tendencies. Here comes rejection, watch this. The sting of rejection arises. So Jesus sends the messengers, the messengers come back, and here's their answer. The people did not receive us. Why didn't they receive him in Samaria? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Do you remember what I mentioned about the Samaritans strongly convicted that all worship should still take place on Mount Gerizim? And so they hated it when people went to Jerusalem to worship. And they knew that Jesus was just using Samaria as a cut through. That's the way they receive it. He's just going to walk himself right through our culture. He's going to eat our food. He's going to sleep under our roofs. And then he's going to go up to Jerusalem. Not on my dime. He's not doing that. We will not receive him into this village. You see, it always works two ways. I I know in most of this series that I, as a Caucasian, have challenged other Caucasians concerning their attitudes towards other races. I've done that. I don't apologize for it. More needs to be said. But this week, an African-American man in our church said, hey, I'm just wondering, do you actually think that, and these were his words, he said, don't you understand that blacks can be racist too? And I said, well, of course I understand that. But the reality is this. The fact that prejudice, racism, tribalism, all of that stuff, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And so what do we do? We handle it tactically. Not tactfully, maybe that too, but tactically. Would you go after it in large chunks where you can? And so if you're wondering if my approach to this has been imbalanced, I'm just going to tell you this, whether you feel it's imbalanced or not, I'm going to tell you it was intentional because as a Caucasian who knows more Caucasians than I do minorities and I have spent more time, more in my life with Caucasians, I'm aware of what the problem is on the Caucasian side and now I'm even more aware of it. Why? Because I have crossed cultural boundaries and spent intentional time with Latinos, Hispanics, with Asians, with African-Americans. And I've said, tell me what I don't know. And friends, there was more that I didn't know than I was aware of. So what is that all about? It simply means this, friends. No, no one race has a corner on the market. No one cultural group, no one political group. The politics in our country right now are are disgusting. They they Literally, I'm, I'm not supposed to say puke in the pulpit. So I will say they make me want to vomit it's disgusting i I, i'm only 47 years old but in my lifetime i've never seen anything like this never and the reality is is we're actually there's some level of ridiculous expectation among christians that the government will actually solve the problem and it's not going to happen you say well jeff well then we're doomed no we're not doomed Did we not just sing about the one on the throne who reigns? Hallelujah, he reigns, hallelujah, he reigns, hallelujah, he reigns. reigns. So the answer is in the church. So we have to address the problem that is in the church. So that's what this is all about. So Jesus, back to the Bible, always a good place to be. He sends messages ahead of them and I say, we don't want him. He's not coming through. Now watch this. This is where the ugly comes out. From two close followers of the Son of God. Verse 54. Because of the rejection of Jesus and, by proxy, the disciples too, the impulse for vengeance is stirred up. Look at Brother John and Brother James. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they, <laughs> they said, Lord, how about we call us down some fire from heaven and toast them? <laughs> that's the JLV, the Jeff Lyle version right there, but <laughs> that's what they meant. Listen, I mean, they were serious. They, and, and, and I want to tell you, it can happen to us, friends, we can be so about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which is absolutely an essential. It's something God blesses. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. filled. And so when we can get so zealous about getting it right, being righteous, and honoring Jesus, And nobody's going to say anything about my king. And nobody's going to lift up an immoral standard that goes against my moral standard. And and we we appoint ourselves as the great defenders of the faith. And we say, I'm going to be the voice that speaks the loudest, the most frequently, the most vehemently. So then we encounter some people that disagree with us. And in our hearts we were wanting to do what James and John wanted to do. By the way, they learned it from their Bible because there was a prophet named Elijah who roasted some folks on a hillside. He did. I'm not even talking about on, on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, the fire came down there too, but he literally, Elijah had some guys that were gunning for him and a foreign king sent out some groups of soldiers to come and arrest and kill Elijah. And Elijah just said, if I'm a man of God, let fire fall from the heavens and consume them. Boom! Toasted pagan all over the hillside. And so the king said, that ain't cool. I'm going to send a second group out. And the second group came out. And Elijah said, if I am a man of God, let fire fall from the heavens and consume this group too. Boom! (laughs) And the third group came out saying, we're sorry. (laughs) We're so very sorry. (laughs) The point being is there was biblical precedent for it. James and John had zeal for Jesus but not the wisdom of Jesus. Young people, y'all listen up on this one. Young men. You'll have a lot more influence when your zeal travels between the guardrails of wisdom and grace. Anybody can denounce. Anybody can denounce. The church can no longer be known primarily for what we are against. That's why they laugh at us. Okay, well, what do you think about the church in America today? Well, they're against abortion. They're against gay rights. They're against all LGBT. They're against. They're against illegal immigration. They're against. And 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 by the way, they're against. And they're against. And they're against. And behind the back against this. And over here against this. And under the leg against this. We're just so creative with everything that we're against. That's why they don't listen to us anymore. Does there need to be a moral standard that's found in biblical? Yes, but it doesn't need to be proclaimed with a lack of love anymore, and especially not a lack of wisdom. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' most heated rhetoric were for or was against the very people who were the ones who set themselves up as the religious rite of their day? And those are the ones he came after the hardest. You get a woman taken in the very act of adultery, What does he do? He writes in the dirt, sends the scoffers away, and then he gets down and he he just says, woman, go and sin no more. You got a woman with five ex-husbands and living with a man, or four ex-husbands and living with a man in John chapter 4. Well, I mean, in in that day, and by the way, she was a Samaritan, in that day, you know, you'd expect her to be stoned or at least ridiculed and mocked, and and Jesus sets her free. She turns into an evangelist, goes and brings her whole city out, and revival breaks out. Why? Because he didn't just sit there and spout off about her moral failures. He actually went to the heart of the matter that she was lonely. She had been abandoned. She had no hope. She was living in shame. And in just a short session, he set her free by telling her all the things that she had ever done, yet he didn't do it with condemnation. And church, we need to look like that. We need to be like that. See, James and John had a zeal for righteousness, But they didn't have the same zeal for love and grace and mercy. So you say, well, Jeff, I I think they had a right to do that. Well, then why does Jesus turn and rebuke them? Verse number 53. It's his correction. It was his mercy to them. His correction via mercy is released. He just turned and rebuked them. Different manuscripts. The ESV comes from a different manuscript than the King James. The King James is what I was trained on. And in that King James, there's a fuller expansion of what Jesus said, that he rebuked them. And part of the rebuke was, you don't know what kind of spirit you're operating in. He actually dug into their, their spirit. And, and Jesus said, no, we're not going to call down fire. I'm about to go to the cross to die for these people. And, you know, James and John are one on a last-minute pyrotechnic show right there in the village of Samaria. Friends, I just will say this, and I know I'm out of time. I thank you for your patience, but I hope you leave room in your life for the Lord to rearrange the way you've done things. You're not too old for God to say, hey, you've done it this way for a long time. You're not going to do it this way anymore. You say, well, man, I'll have to learn how to speak again. I'll have to learn how to represent again. I'll have to learn. Yeah, you're actually not done being a disciple yet. You didn't graduate. None of us have, you know, marched the aisle and moved the tassel when it comes to the school of grace and kingdom. We're all still learning and growing. And so the Lord reserves the right to intercept you in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s and say, we're going to finish up in a way that's better than the way you've come thus far. And most for most of us, he's going to tenderize us a little bit. Especially if you're a zealot. If you're a zealot, he's going to bring some soul tenderizer on you. He's going to sprinkle it. What's that meat mallet? The one with the little funky stuff on the end of it? Do, 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 tenderizer. Tenderizer. He's going to sprinkle it, and he may bring out the hammer a little bit, but listen, he's just trying to make you into something delicious. He's trying to help you. He's trying to serve you up to some other people so the fragrance off your life and the taste off your life. I'm getting hungry. He's trying to do all of that just to bring you to a place where he can use you in a way that you haven't been used. So I'm, going to, I, I'm out of verses. Hallelujah. Here we go. The last thing, watch what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't about to call down fire. Matter of fact, Jesus never really addressed that village, but don't miss this. The Bible says, and they went on to another village. It doesn't mean that they headed back up towards Galilee or they went across the Jordan River route like all the Orthodox Jews did. Jesus said, well, that group of people rejected me. Guys, let's try it with another village. And it's not written in the scripture here, but I can tell you. And worship team, if you could come up on stage, please. When we're rejected, it's a real test of our hearts. When we're rejected, especially men, we feel like calling us down some fire on the source of that rejection. When our tribe is rejected, when our people are rejected, when, our, when, we're, when we're disregarded because of what we look like or our associations, I'm telling you, man, it's like the enemy's saying, how about some fires of vengeance? I'll help you throw them down. How about you stew in your bitterness? How about you blame that tribe of Samaria? How about you just put up a wall in your heart and never associate with those Samaritans again? But look at what Jesus did, because he had a bunch of people following him. He said, James and John, you're not Elijah. Isn't it great, though, that they had faith that they could actually call down some fire if they needed to? I admire their faith, but I I want to learn from their lack of love. And so James and John were told no. They were rebuked. And Jesus said, "Why why don't we try a different village? So they just kept pressing into people. In this issue of God addressing our attitudes, go ahead and mark it down. You're going to experience some relational pain in life. Nobody's immune. The only people that never experience relational pain are hermits that never leave the house and they stay at home all the time. If you're going to do life the way God intends it, you're going to have some risks. And you're going on at times, you're going to put your very best forward to people and they're going to shot block it. They're going to reject it. And the temptation is going to be I want to execute them. I want to destroy them. Vengeance is mine, says Jeff. It's going to be there. Or you can be like Jesus and you can say, Lord, that hurt, but my life is not my own. And I've laid it down for you. And there's others on the other side of this village that rejected me, this person that rejected me. I'm going to try my best to love this person and leave them with you. But Lord, I'm going to keep pressing towards that place of destiny, my Jerusalem. And I'm going to do everything that you want me to do in this life because it's not my own anymore. And the father looks at a heart like that and he says, oh, my daughter, my son, you're becoming like your king. And I'm going to bless you for that. Would you stand to your feet this morning?